You are listening to a podcast from The National. On October 7, 2001, US forces invaded Afghanistan in response to the devastating 9-11 attacks by al-Qaeda based in the Afghan mountains. This drove the Taliban from power in a matter of days. But all the combined might of the United States, dozens of allied countries as well as local partners have struggled to end the war since. 18 years later, the bloody conflict has claimed hundreds of thousands of lives and cost trillions of dollars. It's by far the longest US war and the most expensive. But the Taliban endure. They still command thousands of fighters, effectively run several districts and regularly stage mass attacks on government forces and overrun towns. A military solution to the conflict seems more elusive than ever. But Afghanistan stands at a crossroads. After nearly two decades, the US, who has long said that peace talks should only take place between the insurgents and the government, have sat down to negotiate. Kabul isn't involved in the talks because the Taliban have refused to sit down with them. But there are now efforts to start an inter-Afghan discussion. While the diplomatic efforts have still made headlines, on the ground, the impact of the grinding conflict and what it's doing to everyday life has largely slipped from the news. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm The National's foreign editor, James Haynes-Young, and this week, we're talking about life in America's longest war zone. We'll be speaking to Stephanie Glinsky in Kabul, who's been reporting from across Afghanistan for The National, speaking to government, supporters, and Taliban families, reporting on war-damaged schools, and hearing about how people in cafes in Kabul are trying to get on with their life. We'll also hear from Graham Smith from the Crisis Group in London, who spent years in Afghanistan. He'll talk us through how we got here, what the talks mean, and what might come of it all. If it were not for his job and the weapons stored in Halid's house, a cosy compound with a tree-shaded courtyard in eastern Afghanistan, it would appear as any ordinary rural home. But Halid is a Taliban commander who has been fighting the government for nearly a decade. Halid's story isn't uncommon. The son of an aid worker, he joined the insurgents after being recruited in a madrasa or religious school. But Halid is also a husband and a father of three. He says he's worried about his children's safety because of his role in the Taliban. But he also says he believes in the fight against the foreign invaders, how Taliban forces refer to the international troops. At night, he says he hears the US drones circling overhead. Last year, the government raided his compound and seven people were killed. Halid's work has a profound impact on his family. His 11-year-old son leads a double life. At school, he's the son of a local businessman. At home, he's the son of an important commander, in a force that has close ties to Al-Qaeda. I know he fights and kills. He does it for our people. Adil, Halid's 11-year-old son, says. Adil wants to be a doctor when he grows up and help people in a different way. At school, he learns that the Taliban is bad and the government is good, while at home, he hears the opposite. Adil has made it easy for himself. I like them both, he says. Adil and Halid's story are repeated across the country. Their views of the conflict aren't so uncommon. After so many years... There's no longer any black and white in Afghanistan. People who work for the government have family or friends on the other side of the front line with the Taliban. Many in the middle just want a stable life, regardless of who is in power. In Afghanistan's many rural and remote communities, there's little sense that those in Kabul, whether it be the Taliban or a democratically elected government, have much impact on their daily life. Infrastructure in the country is shattered. Poverty is high. Literacy rates stand at just over 30% for men and much lower for women. Um, it's quite interesting to look at the Taliban support and the government support these days. And I think it varies quite a bit between Kabul and, and rural provinces. 
That's Stephanie Glinsky, who told Halid an Adil story for The National. There's obviously a lot of support for the Taliban and a lot of support for the government. And right now it's difficult to say just how much of the country um, the Taliban actually controls. And even the U.S. has stopped counting. Um, there's sporadic fighting quite, quite through quite a lot of the provinces, especially since the fighting season has picked up. What I've seen a lot is that some of the, the front lines are um, not as clear cut as, as you might think they would be. Um, you have a lot of families even that are divided where you have people who are in the Taliban and people who are in the government. You will have police officers working at one checkpoint and then people working at Taliban checkpoints just, just a few meters um, away and, and they are part of the same family. So that happens quite a bit. There's one one example I can think of um, of a young woman that I met a few weeks ago in, in Helmand in the south of the country, and she had been married to a Taliban fighter who was killed by, by the government. And, well, how it often happens here in Afghanistan is you you then marry the next person in the family, and the, the next brother, and which is, that's what she did. Um, she got married to the Taliban fighter's younger brother, who was a police officer within the government, who shortly after they got married, also was killed. And she ended up marrying the third brother, who was a um, a young man working for the Americans as a translator. And I think it just goes to show that, yeah, it's not as clear-cut. You have one family, you have people working with the U.S., working um, with the Taliban and the government. A lot of people still believe in the war fighting against the foreign-backed government and invaders that have come from foreign countries. Um, others would say that the Taliban has lost a bit of its vision and focus, um, and that means people who do still want to fight jihad or people who do still have that ideology, um, they might actually shift. They might actually, what I've seen a lot in, in the east of the country is that some of these people who, who were with the Taliban previously shift to other groups such as um, the Islamic State in Afghanistan. On the other side of the conflict, the war also feeds into everyday life. In Kabul, despite a ring of security around the capital, the Taliban still carry out deadly attacks on a regular basis. It's really difficult to to separate the war from everyday life sometimes. I've seen that especially in schools where you have a classroom and then right next to it you have a police checkpoint and that's all within the same premises. And kids kind of grow up like that. They, They see that reality of the war. Um, even if there's no active fighting, you see the soldiers, you see police officers, guns. And there are frequent attacks, and children do hear about that as well. And um, they hear explosions if they live in bigger cities. And that fear is is something that people on both sides of the, the conflict have told me, people who live in Kabul who work for the government or people who support the government, as well as um, people who work for the Taliban or are Taliban fighters. There's this fear and that, that sits quite deep within many people and I think it doesn't regardless on what side of the conflict you stand that doesn't really go away people are scared of attacks people are stepping out of the home and what, what you hear quite frequently is that people will say I do go out of the house in the morning but if I will come back in the evening I don't know and that's a common view for pretty much anybody here most people want peace and they want an end to the war and speaking to Taliban commanders, even they would say that most of the commands for attacks that are planned don't come from, you know, 
lower ranks. They come from higher up, sometimes from outside of the country. So I think you see that longing for peace on both sides of the conflict. And you'll find very similar attitudes on both sides of the conflict as well. The country is essentially caught between two very different systems. You have a government in Kabul where political infighting, bickering and insecurity often hamper work. Corruption is high and many people feel frustrated at those in power. On the other side, you have a shadowy organisation that exacts a brutal form of justice and rule. They stage attacks with little to no regard for civilian lives and they wage a religiously motivated war against the internationally backed government. While the Taliban is ruthless, it also gets support for its efficiency. Yeah, I think the the lack of services is definitely a big issue within the government and there's also a lot of corruption and that leads to to more lack of services and you have less of that corruption in in the Taliban. So um, when it comes to the court system, there's a lot of cases and it's very difficult for all these to get processed so it can take many years. So people sometimes do go to um, other courts, um, informal justice courts. And one of those is is the Taliban court where people might seek justice from the Taliban and that's a lot faster. Usually um, it can happen within a day. Um, I spoke to a truck driver who was kidnapped actually and he uh, was let go after after a couple of weeks but had to pay quite a high sum to his kidnappers. And he did go, he did approach the Taliban to help him solve that issue and and they did and they were actually able to catch the kidnappers and get him his money back and um, a lot of the times that's a uh, it's one of the strategies the Taliban uses to maybe even recruit new people and show people um, that they are capable and able to you know to work things out obviously at the same time there's quite cruel practices and very very traditional ways of, of handling just quote-unquote justice. But Stephanie says that not everything is about the war. In Kabul and several other major cities, people are trying to get on with their lives. So it's been 18 years of U.S. invasion here in Afghanistan, and it's interesting to see that the the U.S. first came to, to fight the Taliban, the enemy, and now they sit at the table with that same enemy and they're negotiating a peace deal and, and the government is, is largely left out. So that's obviously a bit of a difficult situation and the US tried to rid Afghanistan of the Taliban and obviously that's also something that didn't happen and now they're trying to, to break a peace deal. So uh, the dynamics on the ground have changed quite a bit over the last 18 years. But another thing that's changed is just the attitudes and the outlook of people. You speak to a lot of the younger generations of people who grew up under the Taliban and then during the U.S. invasion. So, you know, you're talking about young adults, people in their late 20s, early 30s. So you have that younger generation and they do have this, you know, love and excitement for their country and they really want to bring change and they want to, um, you know, have a younger, educated generation that's that's willing and able to invest in the country. And that's definitely something that's happening, and you see that on the ground. So there's, there's this, besides, I guess despite the war and despite all the violence that's happening, there's also this, this positive spirit of people wanting to invest and wanting to make their cities better and their country better and um, who actually want to stick around and see Afghanistan change over the next years and decades. There's definitely a growing middle or upper middle class 
in Kabul. There's a lot of people who go away, leave Afghanistan for a few years, often on scholarships to study in Europe or the U.S. And instead of wanting to stay, they really want to come back. And they really see Kabul, Afghanistan as their home, and they want to invest in this place. And they've been educated overseas and often come back with very creative ideas. So what you see up, what you see here is a lot of new restaurants popping up, um, a lot of coffee shops, a lot of concepts that are a bit on the, the minimalistic side where people want to you know, use simple recipes or simple interior design and kind of build these spaces where people can hang out. And so you have clothes designers and restaurant owners and musicians and artists who come together and change the outlook of the city as a whole, but also contribute to the city's image changing and to the creation of new spaces across the city that are very positive where people can go and hang out and kind of find a safe space in, in this big, big mess of the city. <laughs> she says that peace talks between the Taliban and the US, mostly taking place in Doha, are followed with great interest in Kabul. But there's also a lot of worry. Largely left out of the conversation, Afghans in the capital fear that the US will make a deal that's good for them and leave the government to pick up the pieces. There are real worries that the small but important gains made by people on the ground for women's rights, freedom and democracy since 2001 might be wiped out if the Taliban are allowed into government. We spoke with Nargis Ozayun, who works with the Open Societies Foundation in Kabul. She told us her view of the gains made for women's rights in the country, but also what peace talks might hold. In regards with women's situation in Afghanistan, I must say that comparatively we stand in a much better position compared to uh, 17 years ago. There have been a lot of improvements in the areas of education, health, women's access to justice, uh, women's political participation and in general women's presence in the public spheres. But all of these gains are threatened by the peace negotiations uh, with the Taliban. Mainly because the Taliban um, are a group of misogynistic men who believe in the most extreme narrative of Islam and historically have been very hostile and violent to women. They stand against women's presence in all spheres of life and uh, decide that women should stay at homes uh, within the boundaries of a house. That ideology is very threatening and very uh, disturbing for, for women. Graham Smith from the Crisis Group says that these concerns are justified, but the peace talks are the only solution with any likelihood of working. It's not an easy thing to do uh, because this is America's longest war. Uh, there's a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of mistrust on both sides. Um, and there's some, you know, there's some missteps along the way. Um, I think yeah, as they have been doing this, the Americans have decided to ratchet up the, the campaign of airstrikes, um, which hasn't exactly made things easier at the bargaining table. The Taliban have done uh, some things as well that have not been particularly helpful. So why does he think all sides need to sit down? The war in Afghanistan is now the biggest in the world by far. Uh, it's bigger than the wars in Syria and Yemen combined. Uh, last year, according to one count, 44,000 people died in the conflict, and this year looks to be bigger. Uh, the level of intensity uh, keeps growing. Uh, the Taliban continue advancing, and they're really starting to put pressure on the outskirts of major cities. 
I think pretty much everyone knows that there's no military solution, um, certainly not for the pro-government forces. Um, you know, the Americans surged in more than 100,000 troops uh, during the Obama years, and it was a debacle. Um, it did not uh, measurably improve the situation, and the number of people being killed uh, went up dramatically. So uh, for civilians, for uh, the aid workers on the ground in terms of their ability to access the country, um, all those things went in the wrong direction when you added large numbers of troops. Uh, so uh, I think everyone knows you can't shoot your way out of this mess. But finding a settlement won't be easy. And in a strange twist in the interrelations between the main actors in Afghanistan, the US is now somewhere in the middle between the government of Kabul and the Taliban. In some ways, uh, you have an impossible situation for the Americans because the Americans need to convince the Taliban that they're going to stay long enough that uh, it's important to negotiate an exit rather than simply fighting until your enemies leave. Uh, at the same time, the Americans uh, have to convince uh, the Afghan government and the Afghan political elites in Kabul um, that their exit is imminent, that they are just about to leave, uh, and therefore uh, you ought to be uh, compromising and coming to the negotiating table and you know uh, taking a, a kind of uh, uh, unconditional approach to the talks. And so obviously both of those things can't be true about the Americans at the same time. Um, having the Trump administration in place is a little helpful in this context because it makes the idea of an unpredictable White House uh, more credible. Um, and yeah, eventually the process is going to have to include uh, intra-Afghan talks, that is to say, talks amongst Afghans about the future of their country. And that will have to include um, the people who are today inside the palace in Kabul, um, and the people who are outside the palace, the major political factions um, that have to be accommodated or else you have a bigger civil war. So what happened to the talk of a sit-down between the Afghan government and the Taliban that was scheduled for mid-April this year? It was uh, a struggle right down to the wire um, in the, the hours before they decided to call off the meeting. Um, and that uh, behind-the-scenes wrangling uh, mirrors in some ways the... Um, fundamental disagreements about uh, how peace should be negotiated. Um, the government would like to see a two-sided uh, negotiation with the government on one side and the Taliban on the other side. Um, they want uh, to be recognized in that process as the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, as the government, um, and as the only people who speak on behalf of the government side. Um, the Taliban prefers, prefers to see a sort of multi-sided uh, format. Um, they want, sitting across from them, uh, the people who they believe matter because they're capable of inflicting violence. Uh, so they want to see the old uh, Mujahideen era political parties, uh, Jamiat Islami, you know, Jumbushi Mili, Hizbi Wadat, um, and they want themselves uh, to be called uh, the Islamic Emirate uh, in the talks. Um, now, it's likely that neither side will get exactly what it wants in terms of um, shaping the table. Uh, and Western diplomats have spent years actually telling both sides they're not going to get you know, the luxury of, of negotiating under the uh, precise conditions that they would like. Um, 
and yeah, you saw that play out, you know, dramatically um, in those hours before the talks fell apart uh, in in April. Uh, you know, the government was struggling, struggling to put together a list that eventually ballooned out to about 250 uh, delegates from its side. Uh, but then even whether or not those were delegates from the government uh, was in question because you had some of the government delegates sending their own lists directly to Doha. Um, and then, you know, on the Taliban side, uh, some bewilderment about what they publicly mocked as being a kind of wedding party approach to, uh, to peace talks. Um, they were uh, scrambling around trying to uh, find a format that would include a broader cross-section of Afghans because to them, uh, the uh, elites in Kabul uh, are not sufficiently representative. And so they were trying to find people from uh, more than 30 different provinces uh, who could come as sort of quasi-neutral quasi-Taliban uh, representatives. <clears throat> so it was a mess. Um, but, I mean, that's how peace talks go. Uh, these things are always messy. And uh, I know that there are moves afoot to try again. Um, and that's good because uh, people are dying at just an unacceptable rate. There are efforts on both sides to, to reach down to the grassroots, to the front lines, and... Uh, sound out ideas about the future. Um, this is a really fraught thing on, on, on all sides. Um, uh, there was a, a large sort of peace jirga gathering uh, in Kabul. Um, more than 3,000 people attended. Um, President Ghani uh, did it to try to organize some sort of a, uh, a mandate for, for peace talks. And you could see at that event, there was a lot of uh, just grassroots enthusiasm for peace. People are sick and tired of the fighting. Um, but there is still a lot of uh, contention and disagreement about who gets to make peace and on what terms. And so, you know, people got thrown out of the gathering. There was a lot of um, uh, political back and forth as uh, rival presidential contenders boycotted the event. And so you had a lot of the real heavyweight politicians not being a part of this, uh, this peace trigger that Ghani organized. Um, and on the other side too, the Taliban uh, are having to finally um, put together a detailed political agenda, which is not easy for them. You know, they, they've been rallying tens of thousands of fighters across the country for years now um, under the sort of broad slogans of get the foreigners out and install uh, an Islamic system uh, but they have never tried to define what those slogans mean. Um, and so now they're really having to do hard spade work politically to um, put together uh, an agenda. And so, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it is really, really tough and it's going to take some time. But is there any precedent in Afghanistan to think that there is a peaceful way out of this war? Well, surprisingly, yes. Almost exactly a year ago, something amazing happened. For the first time since 2001, all the guns in Afghanistan went silent. A short ceasefire took place to mark the Eid holidays at the end of Ramadan. Fearsome-looking Taliban fighters with big beards, traditional turbans and patterned scarves, who for years had lived in the shadows and hid in the countryside, entered the cities, met and talked with government soldiers. People ate ice cream, children played in the street, and for three days, the war stopped. While the government sought to repeat the rare respite again this Ramadan, the Taliban said no. Even so... Graham believes the moment was hugely significant and played a key role in leading to where we are today, 
with a chance at a negotiated settlement. The ceasefire was the stunning object lesson in command and control. President Ghani said this himself, actually, that it was like a natural experiment. Uh, and the experiment was, you know, when the Taliban leadership sends out a press release saying, let's stop the guns, um, do the guns go silent? Um, and the short answer is yes. Uh, and so all of these analysts, you know, who had been speculating that the Taliban lacked the command and control, that there actually there was sort of 20 different uh, splintered factions running around out there, that they were all terrorists, you couldn't possibly negotiate with them. That turned out not to be true. It turned out to, ha you know, that when you hit send on, on, a, on a message and it goes out over WhatsApp and, and whatever, um, that all across the country, you know, hundreds of kilometers north, south, east, west, uh, that these different Taliban mahas, the different Taliban fronts, um, obey their leadership. Um, now, it'll be interesting to see if they can pull that off again, um, and there might be additional uh, demonstrations of command and control necessary as we move into a peace process. Um, but it was a, it was a stunning display, and it that I think is a is part of why the Americans initiated uh, these bilateral talks right afterwards because um, it was clear that there was someone that they needed to talk to. But while this all plays out in negotiating chambers and in conference halls, the people of the country are still caught between essentially two vastly different governments. When we talk about who governs Afghanistan, you really have to talk broadly about two systems. You know, you have a government system that's primarily in the urban areas, uh, and you have a Taliban system that's primarily in the rural areas. Uh, and millions of people every day are living under these two different systems. And uh, it is going to be incredibly difficult um, to bring those two systems together. So when people talk about the Taliban sort of coming back to mainstream politics, in some ways they're already in mainstream politics. They, you know, it is completely ordinary uh, if you're a resident of rural Afghanistan, especially in the south and east, to wake up in the morning and you know pay your taxes to the local Taliban tax collector and have you know Taliban patrolling the roads uh, and uh, doing sort of basic uh, police work and. Um, you know, for a dispute between you and your neighbor to go to a Taliban judge, you're, you're talking about a country that is, that is bifurcated and, and needs to be, to be unified under a single system of government. So will the Taliban, the Afghan government and the US make a deal to usher in a new era for Afghanistan? Well, maybe, but certainly not overnight. The country faces a huge challenge and there's a lot of mistrust on all sides. There's also the threatening rise of a new force in the country. ISIS. While the infamous terror group's proto-state has been crushed in Iraq and Syria, a few thousand fighters and a handful of affiliate groups have risen in Afghanistan. While they've displaced thousands who have fled their tyrannical rule, Graham thinks there might be an odd silver lining to their appearance. The government, the Taliban and the US are all fighting them as hard as they can. It's actually in a, in a, in a perverse way uh, helpful for the cause of peace because the rise of ISIS in eastern Afghanistan, uh, and then oh, this is a, a fairly small phenomenon so far. We're talking about, you know, a handful, maybe between four and eight districts, in, mostly in the east, um, in a country that has you know, roughly 400 districts. At one count, uh, ISIS attacks, uh, or should we say, ISIS-affiliated attacks, 
we're something like 2% of all the violent incidents that occur every year in the country. So it's still a relatively small phenomenon. But it's certainly a phenomenon that has caught the attention of the Americans um, and of the Taliban. Because the Taliban do not get along with the local affiliate of ISIS. Uh, they uh, say nasty things about each other in their propaganda. Uh, and they started to kill each other in fairly large numbers, uh, hundreds and hundreds of armed engagements. And uh, the Taliban have started to devote some resources, sending some of their best uh, units, their sort of their, their commando teams, the Kete Sarah, their red units, uh, up to go kill uh, ISIS affiliates uh, up in eastern Afghanistan. And, and that has impressed the Americans. The Americans have noticed that if you want to get rid of ISIS, that maybe the Taliban are an option. And that I think that opens up new horizons in the negotiating uh, because it becomes clear uh, to the Americans that uh, the Taliban are capable of countering uh, an international terrorist threat. So today, Afghanistan's at a crossroads. Will peace talks be successful and international forces finally pack their bags for the last time? It might be too early to say. But with all sides weary after 18 years, it's possible that something may come of this push, but the gains are likely to be painful and slow. In Afghanistan, a land famous for being impossible to conquer despite numerous attempts, there are no easy solutions. This was Beyond the Headlines. Thanks this week to Stephanie Glinsky in Kabul and Graham Smith in London. Subscribe to the programme by tapping the subscribe button on your podcast app. To read Stephanie's full story about Khaled Nadil, the hidden lives of children of the Afghan Taliban, and all of our coverage from Afghanistan and around the world, head to the national.ae. I've been your host, James Haynes-Young.